0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we're discussing the story of Carol Lane. In fall 1947, the Shell Oil Company hired a women's travel director named Carol Lane, who served in the role until she retired in 1974. Lane's job was to encourage women to travel, showing them the joys of touring the country by car. Lane herself traveled around the United States and Canada, speaking to women's clubs and on radio and TV, giving travel tips and packing demonstrations. Eventually, she even awarded women who developed local travel safety programs with the Carol Lane Award. So who was Carol Lane? Well, to start, she was from New York and California and Texas and Wisconsin, Kansas, Minnesota, Hawaii, Montana, New Jersey, Virginia, Missouri, and Quebec. She graduated from the University of Wisconsin Madison, the University of Kansas, Stanford University, the Trapegan School of Fashion in New York City, the College of William and Mary, the University of California, Los Angeles. McGill University, the University of Toronto, Marjorie Webster Junior College, and the University of Missouri. Okay, what's going on here? Carol Lane was not a real person. She was, instead, a character. A living trademark, developed by Shell Oil. Like the more well-known living trademarks of Aunt Jemima and Betty Crocker, The character of Carol Lane was played by many different women over the nearly three decades of the program, and each woman who played Carol Lane incorporated pieces of her own biography into the backstory. The first woman to portray Carol Lane was Carolyn Iverson, who later went by Carolyn Iverson Ackerman after she was married. Iverson had initially been hired by Shell to develop a public relations campaign focused on women. Soon after she was hired, Iverson started to take on a more public-facing role, shifting into some of the work that Claire Hoffman had previously been doing with the Shell Travel Service. By spring of 1948, Iverson was touring as Carol Lane, and the initial corporate biography for Lane was, in fact, Iverson's biography. Lane, like Iverson, was said to be the first woman to make a round trip to Alaska in a two-seater plane and the first to fly a small airplane over the mountains into Mexico City. In this iteration, Lane had earned a journalism degree from the University of Wisconsin and had been a former aviation editor of a well-known magazine. As the program grew in popularity and Lane was in high demand, another Carol Lane performer was hired. And then, when Iverson stopped touring upon her marriage, she was replaced. At this point, there were two Carol Lanes, one played by Elizabeth Baker on the East Coast, and one played by B. Carpenter on the West Coast. Carol Lane's biography morphed with each new performer to reflect their backgrounds and skill sets. Over time... As Carol Lane performers married or took other jobs, many more women were hired to play Carol Lane in both the United States and in Canada. Even more performed on the radio as Carol Lane. Each new Carol Lane also claimed the past accomplishments of the previous lanes. For instance, claiming they had traveled 50,000 miles in the previous year despite being new to the job. Each individual Carol Lane was claiming credit for the collective actions, not just of all the Carol Lane performers, but also of the support staff and managers of the program. For the most part, the Carol Lanes stuck to the name and persona, even when speaking with journalists. But there were instances where their real names were revealed, such as when they came as Carol Lane to their own hometowns to speak. When Irma Kunha returned to her hometown of Honolulu as Caroline in nineteen fifty one the newspaper reported when she first wrote this astonishing news to her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Frank Kunha of Kanaho Bay Drive, they thought she was changing her name and were relieved to find it was merely an alias inherited with her job, in addition to speaking engagements. the Carolines, with their assistance also wrote newspaper columns and a number of booklets, including Touring Can Be Child's Play in 1950, Carol Lane's Vacation Dressograph in 1953, Let's Go Camping in 1960, and What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing Under the Hood of Your Car? or Please Lady, I'd Rather Do It Myself in 1970. In Carol Lane's Vacation Dressograph, She gave such advice as, Think of costumes rather than clothes when planning your vacation wardrobe. To achieve budget-wise chic, choose new articles that coordinate in color, cut, and fabric with the clothes you already have. The Carol Lanes also appeared as guests on local radio and TV when they came into a town to present. There were as many as five films produced for rent. Among these are How to Pack a Bag, from 1954 or 1955, and Traveling with Children, in 1955. The Carol Lane Project ended without fanfare, in 1974. Although there never was a press release or formal explanation of the end, it appears that the program may have been disbanded because of the oil embargo in response to OPEC. Shell may have considered driving around the country and encouraging car travel to be bad optics in the midst of a crisis. Whatever the reason, Shell did not resurrect Carol Lane, and by 1996, the living trademark died. Historian Dr. Melissa Dahlman created a digital dissertation called Changing Lanes, a Reanimation of Shell Oil's Carol Lane in which she researched the living trademark of Carol Lane and identified at least 24 separate Carol Lanes. It is Changing Lanes that is the source material for this introduction. To help us understand more about Carol Lane, I'm speaking now with Melissa Dolman. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, and thank you for introducing me to this living trademark, Carol Lane, that I had never heard of before. Super fascinating story. Uh, so tell me how you first learned about, found out about Carol Lane and started thinking about this as a project.
1: It's It started a long time ago in, in these ways, in these terms of uh, writing a dissertation. It, was, it actually predated that. And I was working at the Schlesinger Library, which is at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. And we had Uh, the papers of Caroline Iverson Ackerman, who is the person who developed the character for Shell Oil. She had been hired by them as a a PO representative uh, to help with the the, um, Shell Touring Service. And so we had her papers and I was familiar with her and and we had done an exhibit and I had had shown one of her films in a uh, film series we were doing. So I was familiar with Caroline Iverson Ackerman as Caroline. And then I remember that my friend, Skip Elsheimer, who is the owner-operator of AV Geeks in North Carolina, his film collector has over 25,000 films of sponsored films, and, and such as uh, How to Pack a Suitcase. So I was familiar with that film, but what I became aware of is the Carol Lane that was in our collection at Schlesinger was sort of 1940s looking. She was brunette. Um, she went on film. She fidgeted with her hands. You know, she had a very sort of Wisconsin accent, she was just very, very different. And what Skip had in his collection in How to Pack a Bag, How to Pack a Suitcase, was a blonde 1950s Carol Lane who was sort of coiffed and, you know, coiffed in that kind of way in 1950s and sort of had different demeanor. Just, she was just a different woman. So I got very, very concerned about this. And I wrote to him and I said, so I've discovered a different Carol Lane. And that sort of led me down uh, a research path where I started looking and I was finding, I found a couple more and then I found eight. And then eventually this turned into a dissertation project and I found over 24 Carol lanes
0: through six, eight years of, of digging. <laughs> and it takes digging, right? Because yes. I, I, as I think you mentioned at some point in the dissertation, uh, you know, the Shell Oil has a closed archive. It's not like you can go dig through their archive and see what's going on. So you've got these papers for Carolyn Ackerman Iverson, you know, what what are the other kinds of sources and materials? You have tons of different kinds of materials that that you were looking at and how did you find them?
1: Well, the first couple of Carolines, besides Iverson, there was a, sorry, just one, there was a headshot in her papers and it just said, West Coast, Caroline, but no name, nothing else attached. And so that was sort of the second that I found. Um, So that was in her papers. So when I first started researching, this was before um, newspapers.com went online. And I kind of was going back through through the timeline and I was like, geez, that's really where it took off. Because once they went online, I started, I started researching there and just kind of seeing like how popular was this, how pervasive, how widespread was this campaign, this program. And so that suddenly, like some years ago, that was I suddenly uh found. 3000 3500 articles of, of mentioning her in different ways and then digging through there and calling and then I, and there and doing that research I started finding all the different faces and then I started digging through ancestry.com and other kinds of resources. And so as I started kind of triangulating information and putting finding faith finding when someone would admit their name in public to, to a journalist, I would say, right on. Okay, now we start, I can start <laughs> looking at who you are. And then, you know, one Caroline was being interviewed in San Francisco in the San Francisco Chronicle, and she mentioned um, dropping into town to, to, to do her work, but also to see her friend, Sherry Baker. And I thought oh, that's interesting. So I started like Sherry Baker. I'm like, yes, I found another one. So I really was just, you know, really just digging and digging, going down these rabbit holes. And one of them turned out I had two Carolines. And I looked at, I found a name that was uh, that it corresponded to the time that I figured out these women had been. And anyway, I f- and then there was a, a, an author, actually a senior editor at New York Times. And I wrote to him because he had the same last name as one of them. I said, listen, are what are these two women? Are you related to one of these women? And he's like, I am the woman on the left. (laughs) So then he was able to tell me more about her. So it really ended up just being rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole
0: for a good decade. (laughs) And even with all of that, and with everything that is now digitized and Google image search and everything else, there are still a few that you haven't identified, right? That's right.
1: The Canadian ones have actually been particularly difficult, even though I have been in communication with, they have sort of alumni, so to speak, associations, ex-employees who would have been around, I think that's what they call them actually, Um, had been around during the same time. And I corresponded with sort of one of their, you know, heads of their organizations. And he said, I'll pass it around. Um, Nobody recognized her. The two, the few that I hadn't read, Um, some of them I found, some of the later ones, I was able to, the cat came out of, you know, was let out of the bag and I was able to find out what her name was. So I was able to discover, so where a couple of them went to college and, you know, where they'd worked beforehand, but it was really just when they went and the Canadians were particularly tight lipped about letting the cat out of the bag. So I think that helped to explain that, but some of the other ones, I have like their wedding announcement and I can find, oh, and, and her obituary. So that's unfortunate. I, you know, these these bookends of marriage, that, and same with one of the radio ones. And I do, I keep trying. So actually, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was, is that the next phase of this project is to do outreach, continue to do the outreach. The part of this, this project that's missing is the um, audience response, you know, actually finding people who encountered her and remember her. I'm hoping that the more people kind of hear about this then some of them the will come out of the woodwork and say, that was my mom, or that was me. A couple of them are still alive. Yeah. So, and despite my best efforts to find them, it's been tough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I'll definitely, when this goes up, put, uh, you, you have a link on the digital dissertation that we will talk about. Uh, that's like a, a request for for help. And so I'll put that yes, link yes. If, if people want to <laughs> yes. help and, and can find those. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So let's talk about this concept of a living trademark and Shell wasn't the first to use it, um, but what's kind of the, the purpose of the living trademark? Is it usually multiple people playing the role? Like what, what is, is going on here? In
1: some cases, the living trademark is actually just a company patenting a person's real name and in, in a really famous case, for instance, Philip Morris Discovered a uh, bellboy in New York City, and they really, and one of the um, people, one of the advertising people, heard this. Bellboy of small, a grown man but of small stature, and they heard his voice, and they really thought that really effective um, means to. They loved his voice. They wanted to put his voice on radio. They thought he was cute. They thought he would be really. They thought he they might attract children. He was a very interesting character, and his name was actually Johnny. And so they took him. They took his whole character, and they put. They made his character um, little Johnny Philip Morris. And so in some cases, they would take a real character and they would make that epitomize. They would think they put that character out there as representative of what the company wanted people to think about them as being. His voice was catchy. But in the case of Johnny Philip Morris, um, eventually the work became too hard for one person to handle. And so they started hiring other young men of similar stature. He was only about four feet tall and they would dress some up as bellboys and they would send them out to other parts of the country to do uh to cover you know other geographical areas because it became too much that's the same thing with caroline it's the same thing with Betty crocker it's the same thing with aunt Jemima. is really the work became too much for one person to handle and so while the company was able to say for instance about caroline she was able to handle Um, driving, you know, 40 to 70,000 miles a year, she wrote all these articles, she was able to, you know, write these books and and, and visit all these locations. Wasn't she amazing? Doesn't isn't she representative of how amazing we are as a company? Aren't we amazing for for supporting um, for creating such a high profile job for a woman? that's very much the case for Betty Crocker, you know, also, is that aren't aren't we amazing? Aren't we special? And, um, but also what it did is it then hid the fact that several people had the responsibility, had the, had to split this labor that is attributed to one woman, one living trademark or one, you know, (laughs) bellboy, you know, Johnny Philip Morris, is that it hid the fact that these people were having to split the job, had to split the duty because it was too much for one person but as a living trademark it also again they epitomized the company's ethics the kind of things they
0: supported um or they just thought they were cute <laughs> there was that too so in the case of like antimima it's it's the picture right on the packaging of syrup like that is directly what is being sold with the Aunt Jemima image what is being sold with the caroline image because they're not like putting her picture up on their gas station pumps or something so what is the goal here for Shell Oil?
1: Right. Indeed. Her 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 face was they was not included. I mean, as they have an illustration of her, sometimes inside, like a particular one who was really active at the time. Sometimes an illustration of her would be in the back of a booklet. But eventually they really kind of they really focused more on a hypothetical, like a cartoon version that didn't resemble any of them. Sort of she was sort of blonde and sort of maybe that. 1950s 1960s um, blonde version of her so her role again was to sort of elevate um, Shell Oil's reputation because it was the first in her case it was the first oil company to reach out to women as a demographic as a marketing demographic in the country The first oil company to do that and so she, she was sort of the 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 in-between, she was the center of this two-way, this idealized kind of two-way communication between Shell and their intended um, audiences. And again, she was meant to go into, I mean, she would go all of the, she wasn't just like New York and Boston, like she would go to Des Moines, she would go to these, these really tiny little communities and when she would go to these communities, like she was less of a big deal in Los Angeles because there was plenty of things to do. In Los Angeles, there are plenty of, of ways for a women's club, who was their major, their their main um, demographic that they particularly, and we can go into that later, but there was plenty of uh, things for, and, and people and events for women's clubs to book, you know, to, they didn't need Caroline, but in some of these smaller towns, she was a big deal. She was she was a coup for them to have this kind of person coming from ooh New York City or from Los Angeles, talent in a way to come and to these communities and talk to them about famously how to pack a suitcase. She was always you would know, demonstrate how to do that. but also talk about budgeting and all, really just kind of encouraging wonderlust. Um, and also tapping into what these women were already doing, the skill sets they already had. They already knew how to budget. They knew how to. They had done a lot of uh, also market research that women were already planning a lot of the vacations anyway for their families. And she was there to sort of help them with the budgeting sort of, or, you know, if you're going to a town and you're pulling up to a hotel, this is a way to kind of survey the motel or the auto cart to see if it's safe for you alone, traveling alone, if you happen to be traveling alone, but, um, or with your family So she was all kinds of, full of all kinds of tidbits that she would both impart to them as she would come through their town, and also, as she reported, and I do think this was true, especially in the beginning, um, also it was about her collecting tips, because when she, you know, when the campaign first started, the program first started, um, the first few Carolanes were not, well, the first Caroline, Caroline Iverson was a world traveler, but they couldn't expect every successive Caroline to have that um, that knowledge, and so um, part of what she would do is gather travel tips from the communities, especially because they had. I haven't really said this, but they split the country down the middle, and another one did Canada, and so they would specialize. They would specialize doing, you know, East Coast versus West Coast, snowy climates versus beach climates, older folks
0: versus urbanites. Yes. Did Shell Oil have any kind of, I don't know, metrics or anything to figure out if this was working, how it was working? You know, they, given the the resources that they put into this, they must have thought that this was a campaign that was worthwhile, but did they have any way of measuring that? Boy, would I like to know.
1: Uh, that was one of the things, <laughs> that was one of, that's one of the heart,
0: you know, heartbreaking
1: aspects of, of not really having access to their corporate archives, not for trying. And they have been really lovely when I've corresponded with them with, with um, supplying uh, a few bits of information. Um, one was particularly good, which was a, a speech that one of their PR managers had given that was particularly useful. Um, but I don't know. And uh, what I know is what they tried to do, which was they did, um, they surveyed, um, the Shells Touring Service surveyed women prior um, to that or in in, in collaboration with um, J. Walter Thompson did it. You know, they helped to do that for them, survey uh, women drivers and, and such. And so that I see what they tried to do. I don't get to, I never got to see why they can because this is one of the longest campaigns of its type that I've been able to discover like there's on my on my site I, I have a graph where it shows both sort of you know length of time it rivals a couple of not like Betty Crocker and and Aunt Jemima that went on and on but as far as like people that have a similar a similar ilk other living trademarks she had just quadruple, you know, the amount of coverage, newspaper coverage and television coverage and magazine coverage, then the next person down from her as far as quantitatively. And so it must have worked because they kept doing it for until 1974. They kept at it. I mean, it starts to wane a little bit, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't go. You don't see as many in-person events as you did during the kind of heyday, which was the 1950s and, and early 60s. But she's still out there. You know, there's still a couple of them split in the country and talking to women. So, I, yeah, I would love to know, well, all you find is in the early, earliest days in Caroline Iverson Ackerman's papers, um, she does have some statistics, statistics about how many people that she reached, how many magazine articles we did were they able to get the campaign into um. Little pieces on Caroline. There was some t- statistics in there, and they were doing a great job. But that I have no more information after her personal papers. Mm. Um, so through 1950.
0: Who were the kind of women that they were targeting with this campaign? What what was the audience? Caroline Iverson
1: particularly advocated for their reaching out to uh, women's clubs. That was their main objective. From from the get go, they were fish in a barrel. Essentially, (laughs) she said, you know, they were. She was like, they're highly organized. There are hundreds of, you know, millions of women organized into clubs all around the country. Be it professional, you know, Federation of Women's Clubs, professional organizations, um, church groups, you know, PTA, all these different groups. You know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, not really, but uh, there were also advertising clubs. And while it's difficult to ascertain whether there were any women invited to those talks, you know, she also would reach out to some men. Um, and those, that was one of the ways she would reach out to men. But really, it was women's clubs were the main objective. Um, and also the early, especially the early Carolines were also members of women's clubs themselves. And there was this really short-lived uh, journal Early on, I guess you would call it a journal or just a trade magazine called Agenda, and it was. And she became familiar with that because I think she was friendly with um, Printer Zinc, which was a uh, a company that literally <laughs> prints people's materials, but also they they would track PR and advertising campaigns in the industry. And so I knew she knew one of them, and it was his wife who started Agenda, and it was specifically aimed at women's club. Um, event planners like program planners and she's like and through she goes amazingly she's like westinghouse you know um 20th century fox like all of these companies are getting in and they're getting to these women through putting uh educational materials in here or like how to walk them through um hosting a screening you know how to kind of run a book club this she's like we, she's like this is it this is the fish in a barrel these are the women who we can get and and you know in large groups. and so even early on, in order for you to book Carol Lane, she would say early on, and this is kind of maintained to be the case throughout most of the program is you had to have at least a hundred people mm-hmm. in order for her to come to your event. And so what you discover is sometimes a, a club would have that many people just, you know, handy in their club anyway. But so a lot of times what you would see, what was fascinating for me is in these smaller communities I was talking about, where she would kind of come through a small town and I would discover that she was coming through town and newspapers that don't exist anymore. I mean, that was also a fun byproduct. This is seeing how many newspapers didn't exist anymore. But what I would see in those in those as announcements that she was coming is that um, first you would see. The announcement that was going to happen and then you would see another announcement a couple of weeks later like oh you're not you don't your town can't accommodate this club doesn't have enough people so then they would started opening it up to women in the pta other groups you know like then it would certainly be like every woman in town was sort of, you know you know supporting every group in town everybody was coming together to support this so they could get the numbers to have this interesting and you know semi-celebrity come to their town but yeah, women's clubs was really the, the main objective there, is to reach out to them, get them excited. Also, they had they had good works they were doing. They were the ones who were um, participating in um, highway beautification campaigns and traffic safety. People were obsessed with traffic safety in the in the early fifties, and so even then, even to more attract them from from really, I think starting in. 52 was it? Um, they started the um, Carol Lane Award for Traffic Safety, and so that too was. So she would they would announce this, um, and it would be like in the society pages or the women's pages, the newspapers where they assumed women. That's where women's clubs would be advertising their events and their calendars, and. In those same pages, that's where you would see this announcement to say, hey, and here's an award. You can get a $500 bond or, you know, eventually more than that or $250. You can get a certificate. You can get this amazing um, bronze statue. And I actually have one of those bronze statues that was given out to someone. And so that was another way to connect because they were already doing these kinds of good works. And she was like, why not award them as well? And also then, then they become fans of Shell. And they become patrons. <laughs> and yes.
0: So all of the Carol Lanes are white. Were the audience, were these women's clubs mostly also white as well?
1: That was one of the things that I wanted to really investigate here was what sort of audiences, because there's the assumption that because, you know, it doesn't take very long to sort of get into a conversation about, you know, women, you know, households moving to the suburbs and women are doing more driving and, You know, over the course of the 50s, the 70s, you know, the ratio of men to women drivers becomes like 60, 40. And then, you know, increasingly after that. So, you know, conversations can kind of get, you know, bogged down and that sort of, not bogged down, you know, but like concentrated in that part of the conversation. And so as I started researching that and sort of trying to punch holes into the supposition that, of course, they're all white. Of course, they're all white suburban women who moved the country or the suburbs and have cars and are doing more driving and all that's true. But what I was finding was that any, the very, very, very few people who have written about Carolyn, usually in passing a paragraph here or a sentence there, kind of just talk about her, talk about her audiences in the sort of general terms or as readers, you know, of her booklets. And so what I did is I... the newspapers in newspapers.com, they do have, they do include New York Age and the uh, Black owned newspapers. And so I would do a concentrated search in there. And what I would find is um, very little, but she, they would put the advertisements for the call for uh, uh, proposals for the Caroline Award. You would see some of that in the kind of women's or travel uh, sections of the Black owned newspapers. You would find some of her uh, kind of PSAs about winter driving that usually come in cartoon form or some, you know, she did have this cartoon version of Caroline as well, as I mentioned, but also a kind of cartoon PSA campaigns. And you would find them in there. But when I mapped out all of the locations where she went and and what I did, so so I mapped out sort of where, you know, at least a, a third of all of the newspaper articles that I found are mapped out. So where did she visit? And also, where did Shell focus on newspaper campaigns in a particular area? And so that, of course, and then then through that, I would look at some of the census tract uh, information about cities, where she went. And then like, you know, you can even get down to street level. But what I did to compare and try to tease out more of that also is I I mapped the, uh, the Green Book the Negro uh, travelers, you know, Green Book. I had mapped those out from 1947, which is the year the campaign started and another year, 56, I think it was. And so what I was able to do was overlap where were the locations where um, blacks and other people of color were um, welcome to stay and how close sort of on that street or neighborhood level did it come to, uh, did it match up with where she would visit with folks? And so to me, that was a way to sort of get at, um, was she t- speaking in, in Black communities or communities that were at least open to and hospitable to, um, you know, travelers of color? And so what I was finding is, is not a lot. <laughs> um, I also, she also advertised in this Navajo um, language newspaper and mo- like a monthly that was out uh, in the 1950s. And that inspired and so some of the cartoons about, you know, winter travel and kind of stuff. Then um, But no calls <laughs> for women's groups and that. And what I discovered also is that she would kind of speak about Native American communities, but not really to them. She mm. wouldn't visit sort of even the diaspora, even sort of locations around Indian lands reservation. She wouldn't really get very close. She would just kind of like, so go to Cherokee, North Carolina and talk about how great and interesting Cherokee is, including these, you know, cultural events you can go to, but she wasn't really talking to the people themselves.
0: So I talk about this digital dissertation that you've done. So I, I have never seen a historian before do a digital dissertation. So this was new to me, and and mm-hmm. I wanted to talk sort of how how you came up with this idea and and why you thought that this was the way to present this dissertation. And I suppose what a digital dissertation is for people who, who don't know.
1: Oh well, sure, there's an increasingly you know I'm talk you know we're talking. Still, rather a minuscule percentage, but increasingly um, throughout the country and throughout the world, people are starting to to. This is becoming a more acceptable and acceptable way to um, expose people beyond your core committee, dissertation committee, to your ideas. And because even if someone's interested, it it may not occur to them that they could go into a university, your nearest university catalog and go and search through dissertations in the course catalog. You know, it's not people, it's, you know, not no one necessarily thinks that way um, unless you're really, really interested in researching a topic. And so this is a way for it immediately to become kind of a public history project. It isn't sort of sequestered away in a monograph. Of course, now all monographs are are digital. Again, so you can find them that way. But of course, in the old days, they were bound and put in a library and have to go find them that way. So again, increasingly, people are doing it this way. But what is um, one of the reasons, for instance, it was important to me is I used a form of research called prosopography, And it means that you are collocating data from all kinds of sources about a people and what you need in order to really sort of juxtapose these disparate bits of information from different sources is to put them in a a relational database, which means a database that you can search, um, keyword search. And when you you put different terms together, they will come together and you can see sort of like, oh, this person was traveling in this area during this period of time and, or they were, you know. So there's all kinds of data that you can bring together and that helps you sort of sort through and get at really under-recognized, under-researched populations that kind of like Carolee and all the people who played her. And so I was going to need to show show the public a, a relational database anyway. And as I kept going and showing the maps, I was like, why, rather than just, you know, I wanted interactive maps. So I wanted this interactive census track tool. I wanted people to be able to look at the same exact evidence that I was looking at. So they could come to, um, they could question the assumptions that I came to or conclusions that I came to. They could, um, you know, contact me and say, I don't know about, that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Or isn't that interesting? Um, but also, it's an exhibition space. And so, while post requires that you create a database for everyone to look at and sort of see if they come to the same conclusions, so does showing, uh, displaying the evidence that you're relying on also alongside the argumentation. And that's always been of interest to me because, you know, for instance, people will write, you know, uh, books, uh, cinema studies books about. A certain genre, and they will, especially if it's an underrepresented genre, and they will often have a companion site so that you can go and watch the films uh, as you're, you know, before or after you read this essay. I have always, that was kind of a, like a segue, like an interesting way that people were going with that. And I thought, well, let's just take it further. Let's take that step further. And let's just put them, let's put the evidence alongside um, the textual analysis so that people can, again, come to their own conclusions. And also, of course, Even though much of the material, much of many of my examples are in the public domain and I can freely add them, some Mm -hmm. of them are I use under fair use, and so in order to to publish this, even through ProQuest and stuff, they as rightly are funny about whether you have rights to certain things, even though I've seen many people who would just throw oh, it you know, <laughs> cast that idea aside. Um, and I'm very much a proponent of fair use. Um, but I thought also, I want to just just jam images and t- you know newspaper articles and videos and all the stuff I can find in here as evidence. And I want people to, be, you know. So to me, I was like, there's no question. This needs to be an exhibition space. It needs to be a space for me to show some of the more experimental argumentation that I do through video and and have you know, and allow people to look at the same tools. And so using Esri, the platform that I did, which is known, well, historically, it's for mapping. It's a it's a platform for mapping and doing other kinds of um, um, topographical analysis, that kind of stuff. And so I also thought that would be a really fun idea. To because Caroline disseminated travel guides, tabulated travel guides. I was like, wouldn't that be fun to use Esri's tabulated um, platform, story, story um, map, story journaling kind of platform, which replicates at least sort of a little bit stylistically the idea of a tabulated guide. And so once that, that occurred to me, I was like, yes, I think <laughs> there's no question. And so there are challenges. That I didn't face a lot of uh, of pushback in my committee. Everyone was sort of on board. It's certainly being done now more often, so I was able to supply best practices um, that Duke University and and uh, other universities have formulated. Um, so you can give that as a to your committee and say this is being done, and also here is best practices I'm abiding by. Best practices, best, both best practices for the reviewers and for the creators you know, what you should expect to see when you encounter
0: a properly made <laughs> digital dissertation. So how do you know then kind of when you're done, you know, like if you're writing a, a dissertation, you know, like it's going to have these five chapters and okay, I've drafted this chapter and I'm done, you know, it it feels like something like this because it's such, I mean, it's a massive project and it's a, you hugely detailed, beautiful, I should add website. So, you know, how do you, how do you sort of get to the point where you go, okay, I've added all the things I'm going to add, and I've made the arguments I'm going to make, like, it's just sort of a different structure than I think people who are usually writing dissertations think about.
1: I mean, when your chair tells you to stop. No, no, just kidding. It's um, <laughs> probably no, true of written dissertations too. So, yeah. Generally speaking, I mean, just today, I was I went in and tinkered a little bit, even today, in anticipation of, you know, then the the fun part, of course, is that as anyone who has who has submitted the final dissertation and it has already made its way to ProQuest and it can already, or you know, you maybe you've made a, a hard copy to give to your mom and all that is there still dropped commas you know there are still things that nobody caught you know and so the fun part about this is that I can catch those little things now and I can go in and and make those little changes but also I mean (laughs) my chair said you're done when you're done you know when you have you felt like you have said what you need to say at this point um, before you go on for instance my continual uh you know research in this project but also my continual research on living trademarks generally um, which is still an area i'm still thinking about and still tripped out about them and still kind of contemplating like how they were how they were considered by the public and all of those questions um i could kind of stop and say this is what i know right now i'm gonna move on <laughs> and i'm gonna tell you if this i'm gonna tell you everything i know about it right until this point and even sort of uh, um this was interesting that I don't know a couple months maybe after I was finished with and this has been submitted and accepted and I was waiting was my graduation date to arrive and um, a person got a hold of me and he said you know I'm in one of those films I came across he goes I randomly researched the title of this film I found it on your website he's like I'm the little boy in that film and so that was another you know reason. so I'm so that section I, I actually need to still flesh out that little section uh, again with his additional details. He was able to identify the location and the name of the of the adults and that the other child was his sister and that if you look in the background of this shot, my mom's back there because she <laughs> pulled us out of school that day to um to go do this shot the this shoot for for shell. and so, It'll never be done, done, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm going to continue to research and do outreach to potential uh, audiences who received her and were able to catch her. And so um, it'll never be done, but I had to be done enough to have them all look at it and sign off <laughs> on it, basically, <laughs> as of July 31st of last year. Yes. <laughs>
0: So uh, we could probably keep talking for hours, but people should just go look at the website because it is out there and they can go look at it and, and look through all of it. But are there things that you wanted to make sure we talk about that we haven't touched on yet?
1: I would really like if people were to actually go to the, it's called the Carol Lane's tab and really look at the mini biographies that... I wrote for every lane that I was able to identify. And even when you go over to the, who was Caroline tab and you see some of the other living trademarks that I was able to do, you know, like with the time constraints that I had, do a little bit of a, I you know, a medium deep dive into the various Mary Gordons who played, who was a fictional, was a fictional living trademark for trans world airlines and, and parse through all of the different uh, Aunt Jemima, performers who were out there and who have been sometimes misidentified and such, you know, and get them sort of in one place and, and other, I just started going, I started finding all these different living trademarks and doing little mini mini biographies, but really the deep dives into the Carol lanes and all of their, all of their interests, all of what they, all of their personal professional uh, experiences, special professional experiences and how this seemed to be sort of a, um, a stop in the middle of their professional careers, they stopped and played this character for a while and then went back to journalism. Or mm-hmm. in one case, she went on to be the first weather girl, so to speak, in Texas, you know, in this one station in Texas, maybe even in Texas. I, I'm forgetting my own details now. But I really that I was inspired by Marilyn Kern Foxworth's um one of the earliest, I think the earliest investigations of of all um the uh, Aunt Jemima performers mm-hmm. and so she that came out like the 90s and she really inspired me to incorporate these biographies many biographies of the different because this is about them like I this is dedicated in part to them all the people who because it's a, not a not a remembered program you know in fact it just any kind of uh any reporting about this program just stops hard in 19 19- 74 and a couple years later um they interview elizabeth baker and i got to speak to her daughters about her her uh her reputation or her professional career after that after caroline there was like a little blurb in like petroleum news 1977 (laughs) and the blurb was whatever happened to caroline and it was like a paragraph really and it was really more about elizabeth baker herself and what happened to her in her career but she kind of you know sums it up you know, OPEC energy crisis, and it just drops off. And all you hear about Caroline after this is um, when she's mentioned. Her, well, the obituaries as I was, was identify her. As a couple of the, mentioned her having worked for Shell in this capacity showed up in some obituaries. And people's people who received one of her awards, you know, that would have been significant enough for them to have that have been mentioned in, in a woman's you know uh, biographical sketch in her obituary and. And those blurbs you sometimes see in newspapers, like, you know, what happened 25 years ago this week, you know? And they'll say, and honest to God, some of those small towns, Carolyn coming through town 25 years ago was a big deal, big enough deal for them to remember it again. And so, or at least for someone to say, that's interesting, what the heck is this, you know, and to include it today, because it's again not a remembered campaign. So, but to go back to your question, you really just look at, those biographies, because that's maybe the part I'm, I'm I'm most proud about, which I'm most proud, because their professional and personal and educational experiences are what informed, what populated Carol Lane's corporate biography that went out to newspapers. So when Carol Lane would come to your town and it would say, a graduate of Ole Miss or a graduate of, of you know, University of Wisconsin-Madison... They're not talking. I mean, that's Caroline gets to be all of those people. You know, she gets to, be, everyone gets to, inco- all of those different Caroline performers infused their personal experiences into her corporate biography. And so if it, I didn't know about them, I couldn't suss through the corporate biography and figure out what part of this is BS, what part of this, what, how, you know, what, where did they come up with yeah. this? I'm like, oh, it's because that was that woman's life. Yeah. You know, this woman lived at the Barbizon or whatever like that becomes part of carol lane's biography and i just thought that was you know really interesting so what the public got was this conglomeration this you know composite character who was really several women whose labor was hidden by the fact that it was you know her her personality had to be
0: subsumed into this fictional character so how can people find this digital dissertation
1: they can go to dot Excellent. And that is a URL redirect to the giant, giant, giant URL that um, Esri forces you to, uh, to accept uh, if you use their platform. So
0: that is a simplified URL, URL directs to that project. I'll put that in the show notes too. So, Melissa, thank you. This was really fun. It's a, a super fun part of history that, uh, you know, it, like you said, is, is just hidden. You know, it, it's forgotten. People, people don't know about it, but it, it's so fascinating. Uh, and it's so great that you have found these women's lives and, and are, are highlighting them.
1: Thank you. It's been many years of my life and I feel like I know them better than some of my distant relatives <laughs>
0: at this point. Excellent. Well, thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Unsung History.
1: You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at unsunghistorypodcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.